Hey, good morning, New City. I'm excited to jump into God's Word with you this morning. Uh, I'm sorry that we can't be with you in person today, but we look forward, obviously, to seeing you next week. Uh, If you have your Bibles, though, will you go ahead and pull those out, and let's return to the New Testament book uh, of Acts. Uh, I'm excited this morning to finally return, after about a two-month break, to the book of Acts, this New Testament book of Acts, and our series that we've been looking at for several months entitled The Power to Change the World. Now, if you've been with us these last several months, or if you haven't, let me catch you up. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 really kicks off the entire book and gives us in a nutshell what is the message of this book, not only to the disciples then and there, but to us today as Jesus' disciples today. Uh, Let's take a look at Acts 1, because Acts 1 really is, like I said, the keystone to the entire book, and it actually gives us sort of a three-part outline of what the entire book is going to be about. So Jesus says this to his disciples and to us this morning, Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Back in the fall, we covered Acts 1 through the very first verses of Acts chapter 6, and we saw the power that the power of the gospel saves lives and that it empowers ordinary believers like you and me to speak and to live boldly, sharing our faith in Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the one, the only one who has the power to change and to to heal, to save the world. Now, this morning we have a tall task. We're going to attempt to cover two whole long chapters of Acts. That's Acts chapter 6 and 7, which really is the final account of the power of the gospel here displayed in the city of Jerusalem. And the events here of Acts 6 and 7 that we're about to read will actually propel the gospel outward beyond the walls of the city of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. Uh, But it's not going to go forward in a way that we might, if we had the choice, we probably wouldn't choose this particular way for the gospel to go forward. Because here we have the story of Stephen, who will become the very first Christian martyr. The very first Christian who is murdered for his witness, to be clear, for his words about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, we kicked off the new year by looking at a short passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It said this, it said, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. It goes on to say, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sermon a couple weeks ago, we considered the making of resolutions and how we can do that by God's grace and power. You know, we looked in particular at a few of the 70 resolutions uh, that the Great Awakening preacher Jonathan Edwards made uh, very early on in his life. In fact, he began this list of personal resolutions when he was 17 years old and a brand new Christian. And in particular, I want to remind us real quick of his number 17 resolution, which said this. He said, resolved, I am resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Now let that sink in for a minute. You you may think, well, how do I sort of translate that into 2022 modern English? And and as I thought about that this week, here's my best pitch. 
What he's saying is this, I want to live every day for Jesus, intentionally and urgently, with the calling God gave me, knowing I have a limited time here on earth before I go home to be with King Jesus. So this morning, the life and the death of Stephen has a whole lot to teach us about how we live our lives following hard after Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment and let's pray together and let's jump into the scripture. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you that it is perfect. God, we submit ourselves to it. We pray that you might open our hearts, our mind, our ears to receive your word. Show us how to follow hard after you by your grace alone, by your power alone, we pray. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways this morning to live your life following Christ uh, according to Acts chapter 6 and 7. The first is this. Number one, live as Christ would live. Live as Christ would live. And we see this in chapter 6 beginning in verse 8 and we're going to read all the way through verse 15. The scripture says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. See, after Jesus came into his life, Stephen lived his life full of God's grace and power. Stephen wasn't perfect, and he wasn't on a different level, he wasn't a super Christian, he was a regular guy, just like you and me, but he appropriated God's grace and power in his daily life. Grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. See, grace is getting from God what I do not Deserve And similarly, mercy is getting from God, not getting from God, what I do deserve. Justice, punishment for sin. And Stephen lived to show that the matchless and limitless grace of God. Stephen was also, though, not just filled with God's grace. He was filled with, the Bible says, God's power. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to fill all believers, not with their own power, but with God's power. Maybe you've heard the story of the, uh, the do-it-yourselfer who went into a hardware store to buy a brand new chainsaw uh, guaranteed to increase his productivity 100%. Uh, the handyman returned to the store the very next day extremely upset with his brand new purchase. He said, I got way more done with my old saw. And the salesman looked confused and offered to, to try it out himself in the back room. As the chainsaw began to roar... The handyman said, wait, 
What's that sound? The handyman, trying to saw wood without the power engaged and turned on, is a whole lot like the believer who attempts to live like Christ without the grace and the power that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Living as Jesus would live, though, in grace and the power of the Lord is always going to come with pushback. If you follow Jesus, if you live for him, the world will always push back. The enemies of the gospel argued here explicitly against salvation and against grace in Jesus because, and this is important, because they preferred the lies of their own cultural religion. They preferred the lies of their own self-conceived religion of self-righteousness and a God that they could remold in their own image and, and define who they wanted God to be. They thought, I don't want a God of grace that I need, and I don't want a God of grace of truth. I don't want a God of truth who says that the way I've been living is, is hypocritical. Remember, Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And then Jesus says again in John chapter 16 and verse 33, in this world though, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. The council here that he is standing before was the exact same council that had crucified Jesus. See, the world has all of the world's power. The world has all the money the platform, the earthly authority, the weapons, along with the lies and the twisting of the truth. But their power is nothing before King Jesus. Their power is nothing before the one true God of the Bible. They could not, the Bible says here, withstand the wisdom and the spirit of God. And so it is by God's grace and power that Stephen lives and choose, chose to, to live as Christ would live. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Stephen was one of the very first deacons. He served in, in a ministry of mercy. He cared for widows, meaning he cared for the unseen and the oftentimes uh, overlooked in that culture. He was also, though, doing signs and wonders, meaning miracles of one sort or another, not for his own glory but so that he might advance the witness, the word of, of good news about salvation in Jesus. And guys, it's the same for us. Everything that we do, everything that I do, I want it to be about one thing, the glory of Jesus, the love of Jesus, that, that other people might taste and see that the Lord is good. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus, that is our goal, and to see others follow Jesus as well knowing that he is my life, he is my hope, he is my joy, my purpose, and to die and go and be with him, even now, is gain. So number one, live as Christ would live. But number two, speak as Christ would speak. We see this now in chapter 7 of Acts, and this is verses 1 through 53. Stephen now is going to begin to call out three of the sort of sacred cows of their man-made religion. What we get here in chapter 7 
is this amazing sermon, 53 verses long, including an exhaustive summary that Stephen gives of basically the entire Old Testament, all the way up to the very moment where they are standing and speaking together. See, Stephen knew his Bible. He had read the Bible. He had studied the Word of God, so he was ready in that moment to apply it and even to explain it to them so that they could understand for themselves the bad news of sin and the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the good news of salvation. It's the same for us, guys, that when we open our mouths, it ought to be, it ought to sound a whole lot like the Word of God, filled with God's grace, filled with God's truth. But their first, let's look at their false self-confidences here, these three sort of sacred cows that Stephen wants to speak to them about and, and teach them the truth. The first of their false self-confidence was actually in, in the land, in their land. This is the great promised land that they have been on for years and years and years. And they're taking an unwise and undue pride in the fact that they live in the land. Listen to Acts chapter 7, this is verses 1 through 4. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. See, those listening to Stephen were under the delusion that they had a special privilege and had an automatic right to God's grace because they were in the land that God had promised to Abraham. Uh, in other words, for them, and we can so often slip into this same type of thinking, we don't need actual heart-level relationship with God through Jesus because we live in the right part of town. This is the thinking that they are falling into. But Stephen reviews this using the scripture and shows them that Abraham, their father himself, experienced relationship with God, not because he was living in the land, because he, he wasn't living in the promised land. It was because of God's grace and power and mercy that he experienced relationship with God. The second false self-confidence that, that Stephen wants to speak to, to them about was their sort of celebrity-level worship of Moses and of the law, in particular the way that they had distorted the very law of God. See, their hope of redemption was in keeping their own version of Moses' law uh, instead of trusting in Jesus, the Messiah, to have kept it for them. See, here's the reality that Romans teaches us in the New Testament. The law can only convict. The law cannot save. Because every single one of us fails at keeping the law. None of us can keep it perfectly. But Jesus. Jesus kept the law perfectly, and in so doing so, he fulfilled the law for us. And in fact, it gets worse because what Stephen tells them next is, they, in fact, rejected Moses. They rejected the God of Moses. They rejected God, their father, just like in this moment they were rejecting Jesus, his son. Acts chapter 7, verse 39 through 41 says this, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us 
out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. The third and the final false self-confidence that Stephen wants to call out here was their confidence in the temple. And the idea again here was that God was with them because they had this physical, this earthly temple that they had built. But Stephen quotes from Isaiah to them in Acts chapter 7 verse 48 and says this, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? See, the truth was they were so focused on the building that they forgot about relationship with the God who gave them the building. The God who made the building, the God who made all of creation and made them. They were too focused on the thing that they forgot about the God who had made them. And so Stephen's final words here in his sermon are incredibly serious business and are incredibly convicting, both for those who heard them now, uh, then, and for us now. He says this in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. It's worth applying this very passage to ourselves and asking the same question, what are the sacred cows in our lives? What are the, the, the things that we place our hope in and sort of become self-righteous about and say, if I have this or if I do this, then I'm worthy of God's attention. What are the idols that we put our trust in in modern times? Not just even looking to the culture, but looking at our own hearts. Uh, R. Kent Hughes on this very passage writes this, thinking about the land, the law, and the temple. He says, this applies to us, thinking about the land, it's possible to imagine that since we live in a privileged nation where so much good has been done and so many godly people reared, we will surely inherit God's blessing. The law, he says, sometimes we, like the Jews of old, make a fetish out of God's word. We carry it with us, mark it appropriately, thumb it piously, but fail to let it take root in our hearts. And of the temple... He says, it is easy to suppose that since we go to the place where God has chosen to meet his people, we will receive special blessings. Three times, not necessarily so, says the Bible, it is possible to have all these things and yet be pitifully and utterly damned or saved but defeated and disobedient. Stephen, bottom line, is saying, you have sinned like I have sinned, but you have sinned and you and we need a savior and he is here for you. But he identifies the real heart issue that's going on with them when he calls them stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked is to be prideful, to look down in arrogance and to be stubborn and refuse to admit that you need help let alone to accept the help here in this case freely offered by the God of the universe. So the truth is, we're all sinners. And sin is serious. And sin deserves death. 
And the reminder of scripture here is for us today, in this moment, will you turn away from sin and turn to Jesus in repentance? Or will you harden your heart further? Third and finally, the scripture's application to us this morning is this, to die as Christ would die. To die as Christ would die. And we see this in chapter 7, the last six verses of the chapter, 54 through 60. Here again, the word of God. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Brothers and sisters, to follow Christ is to be at war with the world. By God's grace and power, May we, like Stephen, live like Christ, speak like Christ, and even die someday like Christ. Stephen's life, Stephen's words were his death warrant in this life. The council's actions were illegal, they were immoral, they were unjust, and they were perverse. See, stoning is a slow and horrible way to die. The angry mob took the time to pick up each rock and rock after rock, hurl them at him until he was painfully and slowly crushed to death under the weight of those stones. But there off to the side guarding all of their stuff was one incredibly angry and incredibly self-righteous man named Saul who planned to make his life's work murdering those who loved Jesus. But as we'll see in the next few weeks, Jesus had other plans for Saul. But here in this moment for Stephen, notice that Jesus enabled Stephen in what had to have been the most terrifying and fear-filled moment of his entire life, the very ending of his life violently here on earth. Jesus enabled Stephen to see into heaven and to see Jesus face to face. See, our vision of heaven, our understanding of heaven, and more particularly our vision of Jesus changes everything in this life. Every amount of hurt, every amount of suffering, every amount of injustice is changed completely when our eyes are on King Jesus. I believe uh, that there is great kindness and there is great mercy from Jesus for his people when they die and they go to be with Jesus. Him. Notice here, what should jump out immediately is to you is that Jesus isn't seated. 
As far as I'm aware, every other heavenly scene of Jesus, Old Testament and New, Jesus is always seated on his throne, demonstrating his authority, his power. It is his throne from where grace and mercy pours out. But here, Jesus isn't seated. He is standing. Jesus is standing, looking down to Stephen, even as Stephen is looking up to him. Jesus is welcoming Stephen into heaven. Jesus is attentive. Jesus is personal. And Jesus stands in victory and invites Stephen, even in the moment of his stoning, into eternal victory. See, Jesus is still king. In this moment, brothers and sisters, Jesus is still king. He's still on the throne. He's still at the right hand of God the Father. And your hope, our hope in him, is worth it. He cannot and he will not be defeated, which means you and I, if you are in Christ, that we cannot and will not be defeated. You know, the, the very name Stephen means in, in Greek, a crown or, or a garland. The Greek word behind his name was used for the crown of glory given to the winner at, at the Olympics. What a perfect name for the man who by God's grace and power lived, spoke, and died, and received the crown of life as the very first Christian martyr in human history. Jesus says to his own, Jesus says to every single one of his children when they return home to paradise at their death, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. See, Stephen here gives us a, an imperfect picture of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf perfectly. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus committed no sin. Jesus spoke the truth at all times and at the same time spoke complete love at all times, truth and love. And he always backed up his words with perfect actions. Jesus always served. Jesus always loved. Jesus always showed mercy to the overlooked and to those of us, all of us who didn't deserve it. Jesus forgave us, the sinful people that, that put him on the cross. With Stephen's very last words, before that final stone landed and ended his life on earth, Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this against them. Even as Jesus, dying on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus kept his eyes and his hope perfectly on God the Father. Jesus died the death that you and I deserved, and he died it in our place. He took it in our place. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart any longer as you have done in the past, but turn this day, this very morning, to Jesus. He died so that you can have eternal life with him. He offers forgiveness and new life, and all you have to do is ask. All you have to do is cry out, say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I admit it freely. Forgive me for my sins. Wash me, make me new. I give my life to you. I want you to be my king. And if you are in Christ this morning, let me remind you that this passage calls us by his grace alone, by his power alone, to live every day for Jesus 
intentionally and urgently with the calling God gave you, knowing that you and I, we have a limited time here on earth before Jesus calls us home to be with him forever. Amen. Let's take a few minutes and let's pray together to our Heavenly Father.